0: Once again, good morning, church. You're uh you're stuck with me today. Um I just want to have a few reminders and, and announcements. There will be no service tonight at the church. Um spend time with some family, celebrate Father's Day together. Um also uh all the boys and girls can be dismissed for children's church, and the boys can be dismissed for the boys' um class as well. And so we'll just wait a few moments for that. And this morning I'm excited to preach, I'm excited to be here, and it's always a privilege and an honor to just preach and handles, handle God's Word. And I notice, even as I prepare my sermons, prepare my lessons, prepare my heart and my mind, um, always new things get revealed through Scripture. And it's a, it's a blessing and it's an encouragement to me, and I'm preaching to myself as well as I'm preaching this morning here to everybody. And I want to start off by saying this. Every Father's Day, I ask the same question. What gift do I get my dad for Father's Day? I don't know if you can relate to this, right? But over the years, it seems to get harder and harder, and the question never gets easier, right? How many toolkits does one man need? How many little flashlights or little screwdrivers or multi-tools, right? How many T-shirts that say, World's Best Dad Can You Get Away With Giving Your Dad?, until he just starts using them as rags in the garage or whatever. Um, but for me, right, when I ask my dad what he wants for Father's Day, or even his birthday, what I'm really asking is this question, right? What can I give you that will bring you joy? Right? And that's the same, even when we, when we want to buy presents for people, we always think of this way, what can I give to you, or what can I get for you that will bring you joy, And as Christians, right, those who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us that we've been adopted into God's family. We have this restored relationship with our Creator, with God. We get to call the Creator of the universe, who made the mountains, who made the galaxies, who made the stars, we get to call that God our Father. And the word that Jesus actually uses is a more intimate word, a more closer relationship. We get to call him Dad. Right? So he is our Heavenly Father. We're his sons and daughters because we're covered by Jesus Christ's righteousness. It's nothing we can do. It's not my own works that have made me his son. It's not my own works that I've pleased him in any way or brought God joy. But it's through Jesus' death on the cross. So I ask the same question. Right on this Father's Day, but instead of asking my earthly, physical father, right, what brings my heavenly Father joy? What brings the God of the universe, the one who created all, the Great I Am, what brings Him joy? And the Bible points to a few things, but this morning I want to start and just look at what Jesus says brings Him joy. So, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. Sid. Thank you for reading the first two parables there. So this morning, as you're turning there, we're in the middle of Jesus' public ministry. Right? I want to give you a little bit of context right here. We know from verse 1, as Sid read, we see that the Pharisees, or we see that Jesus is talking with, He's hanging out with, what does it say? The tax collectors and the sinners. Now if you don't know much about tax collectors in Jewish time, They were outcasts of society. They were not even welcome to go into temple to worship God because they chose to betray their people and to rob from them and to rip them off and to work for the enemy, to work for the Roman Empire and be in authority over their own people. So they were seen as really, you couldn't get any worse than the tax collectors. So Jesus, what is he? He's hanging out with tax collectors, he's hanging out with sinners, the outcasts of society. And we see something. We see that the Pharisees and the scribes, and scribes are like modern-day lawyers. They're expert in the Old Testament law. Right, a lot of us, when we read the Bible, and maybe on, on the yearly plan, we get through Genesis, Exodus, and then we're like, okay, well, these, these next couple of books here, it's all about the law. And most, you know, I, I admit, I fail usually at those books, because it is a lot. But these Pharisees and scribes, the experts who knew that law, are grumbling and complaining that Jesus is hanging around sinners and that he actually eats with them. He welcomes their company. And this is not the first time that they've attacked Jesus or have, have been like blown away by this fact that Jesus is doing this. It's not a secret. Like they didn't just find out Jesus, oh look, oh, oh, we caught him, he's hanging out with these sinners. Jesus was very public with this all the time. And they're just disgusted that Jesus, that he would dare to even converse. With these people at all. And in their disgust and in his response, Jesus shares three well known parables. As Sid read, we read the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and this morning we're going to slow down a bit and talk about the parable of the prodigal son. And I want to just say something. Remember, when Jesus preached in parables, when he spoke in parables, they weren't real stories with historical, like, like this is a real person that this really happened to. They were made up stories that had a heavenly meaning to them. Right? So, so what Jesus says, there wasn't like this real shepherd who did leave his sheep, and that's not a historic, but what he's saying, he's using that for a heavenly example, a heavenly moral to the story. And as we focus, right, we're going to focus on this third parable, starting at verse 11. But before we get there, Jesus tells us two things in these first two parables that were read earlier. We learn that something of great value was lost. The shepherd lost a sheep, the woman lost a silver coin, or a coin. We learn that that person who lost it goes to look for it. The shepherd leaves to go find the missing sheep, the woman is searching all over her house for this coin. We see also that there's a public celebration when that object is found. The shepherd goes back and has a a celebration publicly. And then we also learn the woman calls all her friends together and they have this huge party because she found what was lost. And here's what we read, and and I'll read it again in in Luke 15, verse 7. Jesus' word says this, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So in these three parables, Jesus is making a clear stance and a clear, not argument, but but a statement to the Pharisees. So those who are looking at Him, judging Him, condemning what He's doing, condemning the people He's with. And this is the part of this parable. And what brings God joy? Sinners who repent. Sinners who repent. Now let's take some time, we'll slowly work through this this third parable. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 15, and I'll start at verse 11. I'll read a little bit, we'll stop, we'll talk, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep that format going throughout. So Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided up the property between them. or, or sorry, with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So right now, Jesus introduces us to three characters. We have two sons. We have a younger son. We have an older son. And we have their father. And what we see from these couple of verses here, we see a shameful request from the younger son. What he asks of his dad is shameful. He demands that he receives his share of property now. Now. And what he's basically saying is this. that I know when you die I have a will and I'll inherit everything when you die, but I don't want to wait for you to die. I wish you were dead now so that I can receive what's coming to me. That's the audacity of this request and the shame that the son is asking, the shameful request of the son. He's saying pretty much I wish you were dead now. I want my inheritance. And we learn that the father gives it to him. He gives it to the older son as well. And it says, not many days later, we read what? The son abandons his family. He takes all this newly acquired wealth, he, if he, whether he liquidates it, we don't know, but he goes out and he has a plan. He wants everything, he ditches his family, and he goes off to a far country. And the wording that's used there is supposed to symbolize he travels outside of Israel, outside of, Jewish, of the Jewish area, to Gentile lands. He's going away from the safety, from the accountability, and from the love of his family, and going to the Gentiles. He wastes his fortune. Right, We read that he wastes his fortune in reckless living. And what that means is he's choosing sin. He's going out and he's doing things. He's following the desires of his own heart. And we learn that that has a cost. And he eventually loses everything. He ran out of money, which was, that was in his control, right? He, he could have controlled what he spent on or what he invested in or what he saved in. He chose sin. He chose to satisfy the desires of his heart and we see he runs out of money. That's his fault. But Jesus also enters in another scenario that's out of his control. He mentions that there's a severe famine that also hits. So he finds a job and, he, and the job is to work and to feed pigs. Now, For us, we're like, oh, okay, pigs are kind of dirty. I wouldn't want to do that. That's hard work. But as the Pharisees are listening, as the tax collectors and the sinners, as they're all listening to the story, as Jewish people are listening, that is a job that no one should do. right? That is the lowliest of jobs that a Jewish person could possibly have. There's nothing more humiliating than that. And we read what? That he longed to eat. He was so hungry, he saw what the, the pigs were eating, And he longed to eat what they were eating. But he couldn't because humans can't digest that food. But I don't know if you caught this at the very last thing. He said this, No one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. He received no help, no handouts, no grace, no mercy, no money, nothing. So what we have here is a picture of a man who's brought to the lowest of depths he possibly could be. He's all alone. He's in an, an, and I'm going to say enemy, but foreign country, away from his parents, away from his family. He's hungry. He's poor. He's working the most humiliating job a Jewish person could get. And on top of that, no one would give him anything. And I want to continue reading. We'll pick up on verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I want to stop there for a second. And what we see is the younger son, what happens? He, he comes to his senses, he comes to his mind, but he remembers His father's love. He remembers that his father is a gracious man. His father is a man who has slaves and servants under him, and he feeds them, and he gives them more than enough food so that they never go to bed hungry. So he comes up with this plan, and really what he's doing, I believe, and what Jesus is making clear, he's seeking his father's repentance, or he's seeking repentance and going to his father. How do I know that? He says, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, my Father. So he's realizing what he was doing, how he was living, was going against heaven, was going against God. So he has this plan, right? Maybe I can just go to my father and say, listen, Dad, I I messed up. I, I, I want to repent before you, before heaven and before you. I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just take, please just take me as a servant. That that's the only thing he can think of at this part at this point in the story here. At this point, the son is understanding the severity of the shame that he has committed and the sin he's committed against his family and against his father. And he's not he's not expecting any sort of forgiveness, right? As he's rehearsing these these three sentences, he's not saying, please, 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 please. He's saying, I'm not worthy to even be called your son. And and I and he and he's what I can read is he's saying, and that's okay. Please hire me as a servant. Please help me. Help me. He's probably thinking, I blew it. There's, there's no coming back from what I did. There's no forgiveness. My sin is far too great. I'm not even worthy of my father's love as a son anymore. Let's continue reading. Luke chapter uh, 15, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. What we see here is the father's forgiveness or really we see the father's nature of his love for his son. Again, as the son is returning home, right? I imagine, this isn't in the story, right? but but I just imagine as I'm reading this, they're walking. There's no cars. There's no planes. This has to be a far walk. And the whole time the son is walking, he's probably going over it in his head over and over. Father, I have sinned against you and before heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please, please just take me as a hired servant. Please just help me in that way. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And as this is going on, his father sees him from the distance. And his father doesn't wait for the son to come to him. And I think we've all heard this parable before. This is hopefully nothing too new. But the father runs to his son. And it was shameful, as I'm doing some research here in Jewish culture and time, it was shameful for a nobleman to run in that day. And what I mean by that is they mostly had robes and they had their garbs, and what they would have to do is probably lift up the robe a little bit and, and run, and they'd expose their, their bare naked leg. And that was something shameful, that you don't do that. That's, that's embarrassing, that's humiliating. You don't do that. But we see what? The father is running to his son. What does he do? He embraces him, he kisses him. This is a son who's poor that worked with pigs. right? He probably smells, probably doesn't look as the best he could look, father doesn't care. He embraces him. He hugs him. He kisses him. And what do we see? The younger son, he, he follows up with the plan. He has the plan. And what does he say? He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But he's not able to get that last part out. Why? Because the father interrupts him during his own apology speech. His father calls for his servant and says, get my best robe and put it on him. Get the family ring and put it back on his finger. Get shoes for his feet and cover them up. Now again, the the special robe was only to be worn. I looked up some details here. Was supposed to be only worn in special, the most special of occasions, and it was handed down usually to the oldest son first. And you'd wear it at maybe like the oldest son's wedding or maybe the oldest son's um, like birth announcement or whatever like that, Like this robe didn't necessarily belong to the younger son at all. And the father says, give him my best robe. He gets to wear the robe at the party, not me. He says, put the ring back on his finger, the symbol of just the restoration to the family name, the family crest, give him the ring back. Give him shoes for his feet, slaves typically didn't have shoes. Give him shoes, cover his feet, and then what? Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Throw a public celebration again, this it was believed that when you in that time the fattened calf, it was the best of the best. it wasn't like, yeah, bring me like that the, the calf that maybe has like three legs that you know won't last too long anyway. No, give me the best calf, my best calf. Remember, the younger son had. Everything, got everything he received, and blew it all. So everything he's receiving right now is not his. It's the father's, and he's giving it to him. Why? Why does the father do this? He says it, because my son who was lost is now found. He was dead and is alive again. And up to this point, I know I've been talking a lot about the younger son and a lot about his journey and some characteristics of him but we have to stop for a moment and just talk about the Father. Right? And it being Father's Day, this parable came to my mind as just almost like, it seems like the world's perfect father. Right? But Jesus is making a point here. But there's a few characteristics about the Father that we learn. The Father honored his son's request. Remember back in the beginning, Dad, give me what's due to me. Give me my, sake, my, my part of, and my share of the inheritance now. I want it. The father had every right to publicly humiliate, shame, and discipline his son in all of society. He, he had that right. That was a shameful thing. Honor thy father and mother. This was not an honoring request. He had every right to discipline, but the father did it. He gave his son the share, and he gave the older brother the share. Another thing we see is that the, the father is clearly waiting for his son's return. Now I don't think, again, Jesus' words, he doesn't say it, but what we can infer is this. I don't think it's a coincidence that the father's just sort of standing at the window and he's like, oh, my son. I I don't think that's the case. What we see is a father and, and how quick the father is to restore his son and love his son. The father never gave up on his son. He immediately welcomes him home. He he restores his name. Again, as the son would have traveled through the city, if the father didn't run to the son, the son would have had to go through the estate or through the town or through whatever and face the shame of the town, face the shame of walking that walk by himself back to his father. But what we see is his father go to his son, embrace him, and walk with him back to the house. He's taking on the shame of his son in some regard here. He ran, exposing his legs. Right, He's running to his son. He's embracing him. He's walking and welcoming him back into his home. He's wearing the robe. He's wearing the ring. He's wearing the shoes. Also, another thing, the father is rejoiced like the shepherd. He rejoices like the woman who found her lost coin. He calls for the best of the best, the fattened calf, to be killed and eaten. And as I said before, the younger son wasted everything. None of this is due to him. It's, it's all his father's. He, he wasted his inheritance. So the father is freely giving his son, on his own decision, on his own heart, everything. And now we get to the heart of the parable. A lot of times when people preach this parable, as I've listened to fellow youth ministers or, or, other, or other pastors, right, Jesus is telling this parable for a specific reason. And here we're going to get to the heart of the parable. So if you could follow along as we finish it. Verse 25 to 32. Now his older brother, oh, sorry, his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And his servant said to him, Came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So now we get to the, the meat here of really why Jesus is telling this parable, and this is how it ends. It's sort of a cliffhanger. We don't know. But we see the older brother's response. We had the younger son's response. We had the father's response to the younger son. And now we see the older brother. What is he doing? He's working in the field. He's In his mind, he's being a good son. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here, so I've got to be working. I'm in the field. He hears the celebration. He hears the music in the distance. He gets a servant to tell him what's happening. And his response is anger. Immediate anger. So much so that he refuses to go in and join in the celebration. It's not like he wasn't invited. He, he is. He chose in his anger, I'm not going in. I'm not doing it. His father then, right, this is the same father who saw his younger son in the distance and goes running to him, right, the same father sees his other son out in the field, in the distance, not in the party, And what does he do? The father leaves the celebration. He leaves the same father that ran this way for the younger son. He's pursuing his older son this way. He's going after his older son. And really what we see is the older son's heart is revealed through his conversation with his father. We see that he's self-righteous. We see that he's selfish. We see him in his self-righteousness saying, Father, I've never disobeyed any of your commands throughout these whole years. And I'm like, really? But I also think of even the young rich ruler who came to Jesus. Jesus, I've kept every commandment since my youth. Really? Every commandment since your youth? Right? And there's this sense of self-righteousness. And it's funny because refusing to go in the party right now is disobeying his father's command. Father, I've never disobeyed your command. There's the self-righteousness. We see the selfishness. He says, you never gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. Right? He's not even saying so I could celebrate with my family. He says, you never gave me a goat. I, I want to celebrate with my friends. It, it's very selfish. He also made up his mind about his brother, deeming him unworthy of his family. He doesn't refer to him as his brother. He says, this son of yours. He can't even bring himself to refer to his brother as his brother. And we see even in this response, even in the older son's response, which is just as shaming as the younger son's response in the beginning of the story, we still see the love of the father. The father has every right to slap the older son across the cheek and say, you're shaming, this, this is shameful living, this is shameful response. He had every right to do that. He's talking to his father disrespectfully. But again, he lovingly reminds his son, son, everything that I own is yours. You could have gotten that calf at any time to go and celebrate with your friends. Everything was freely yours to take. And this parable, it ends unresolved. Right? I wish it would end with the, the older son saying, Dad, you're right let me go and celebrate. You're right. My, my brother is here. He's alive. It doesn't end that way. It ends sort of on a cliffhanger. The, son is, the older son is unable to forgive. Again, as Jesus preaches parables, right? we have to ask, what is the revealed heavenly truth? What do we learn about the kingdom of God through this parable? We have to ask the question, what do we learn? The first is this. The younger son represents the sinners and the tax collectors that are with Jesus, gathered around him, listening to Jesus. These people listening to the story, I'd imagine they'd have this this sense of hope and encouragement saying, like, oh my gosh, that father can accept the younger son and everything he did poor and everything he did, and all the sin that he did commit, it was sin. And there's hope for him. Maybe there's hope for me. We learn that even the vilest of sinners can be forgiven and redeemed by God if they repent. Again, younger son, I've sinned against not just you, Father, against heaven. He's seeking repentance. I think of the Apostle Paul who's a murderer. right? God still uses him. We were going through the heroes of the faith, Hebrews chapter 11, and a lot of those names on those lists are like, wow, these people have such great faith. They're heroes. And when you look at their character, they're flawed. You have David the king, but David the adulterer. You have Father Abraham who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, right? But two times, multiple times, he he lies about his wife because he's afraid. He's a coward. He's afraid he's going to die because his wife is so beautiful. That's Sort of maybe a weird compliment to his wife. But, like, it's twisted, right? And, And at that regard, there's redemption. There's forgiveness again. In this story, the younger son is repenting. There's a repentant heart. I think of Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, Now the law came to increase the trespass. And what I think that talks about is the more of the law that's been revealed, the more we see our sin and how we fail in that law. And then Paul says this, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As we continue to sin... We continue to receive grace. You cannot out-sin God's grace. Now, Paul also says this because some people might say, well, if that's the case. I'm just going to go on and do what I want to do and I'll sin. And what I'll do is I'll sin and say, okay, God, I want more grace. Okay, I want more sin I'm more grace. Okay, okay. And Paul says, don't do that. He says, that, that, this is not a liberty or an excuse or a license to keep sinning because you know you're going to keep receiving more grace. And he talks about In Romans chapter 6, in the beginning of that, his response to that, right? So I'm not saying right here and right now that because when we sin, we receive grace, that gives us a license and liberty like, okay, I'm going to keep sinning. This is great. No, Paul attacks that thought immediately and defends it in Romans chapter 6. Again, there's hope no matter where you are today, no matter how big of a sinner you think you are. I don't know everybody in this room, and not everybody knows me, right? No matter what we have done, it doesn't stop the cross's power. It doesn't stop, and and it's not like Jesus is like, you did that sin? Okay, well that one, I can't have you. No. As we sang, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. The Father is here going to the Son, embracing him, forgiving him, but there is repentance. There is the understanding of I have sinned against God, I have sinned against this person, I have sinned against this person, There's restoration and repentance. The second thing we see, so the younger son represents the tax collectors, the vilest of sinners. The second thing, the older son represents the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling. They had a problem saying, Jesus, you can't be around these people. They're too big of sinners for you. Hang out with us. We're the people you want to be with. We're in the temple day and night. Listen, if you ask me what Exodus 20, uh, 22, 20 is, I'll tell you what the verse is, Jesus. I know my Bible. I know my Torah. Like, come hang out with us. We're the people you should be with, not these people, not these sinners, these tax collectors. They're self-righteous, and they truly believed that God is not worth, or, or these people are not worth God's love. Over and over, we see that in Jesus' ministry. That's the Pharisees' claim over and over. Oftentimes, they thought God was more pleased by their actions and and where they were and what they were doing rather than their heart. And Jesus, quoting from the Old Testament, says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me on the outside. They they give me lip praise. Yes, God, we love you. Yes, God. But their hearts are far from me away. They might be physically in the temple of God, but they couldn't be any further than God, to God's presence. Again, these Pharisees and scribes, they devoted their lives to studying scriptures, to public worship, they spent hours in the temple having conversations, but their hearts, Jesus revealed over and over their hearts, they're far from him. And the last part of the parable the father is a picture of God. I think, I think we, we can all see that and, and agree with that. We see the mercy. We see the love. We see the perfect grace of a father who forgives, a father who wants to forgive, who, who longs for restoration. Even the younger son, he deserved this public disgrace. He deserved the public shame and punishment. The father had every right to drag him through the streets and say, this is my son. He shamed me. This is him. This is him. He had every right to do that but what happens? He receives restoration and a feast. He receives mercy, right? Mercy being the restoration of the family. He's welcomed back by the Father. And we see the grace, what he doesn't deserve. He doesn't deserve a feast. But the Father says, I love you. You were lost and now you're found. You are dead, you're alive. This feast is for you, my son. As I think about my own life, and as I was just preparing and writing this, I know it's Father's Day, I, I can't help but think about my own self. And what I mean by that is, in less than two months, I'm going to be a father. Uh, I have a thousand questions. I'm scared to death. Um, I, I ask myself, will I be good? Will I be a good father? Will I guide my daughter to Jesus? Will I ever break a promise to my daughter? Will I ever need to ask for her forgiveness. Will she love me? Right? I think of all of these questions it scares me. But this is what I know. If we are in Christ, we all have a perfect heavenly father. Now, some of you might have had the best fathers in the world. And that's great. What a blessing. Some of you might not even know your fathers, or some of you might even hate your fathers or or wish you had a new father. And I don't want to speak to that, but what I want to speak to is as a Christian, if you claim to follow Jesus, if you, have, if you have faith in Jesus, we have a perfect heavenly Father who, guess what, He loves us with a perfect love. We know for a fact His Word is true. He never breaks His promises. My dad's broken a promise to me. <laughs> Someone gave me a look like, no, he didn't. Uh, right? And I'm sure you've broken promises to kids as fathers and as parents. But know this, we have a Heavenly Father who doesn't break promises. He never leaves us, He never abandons us, even when we mess up. Even when we're worthy, and we're all worthy of hell. We're all worthy of punishment, because like the younger son, or like the older son, we've all shamed God by our sin. We've all shamed Him by not loving Him perfectly with all our heart, and all our soul, and all our mind, and all our strength where our earthly fathers have failed us, and maybe there's a hurt and and a pain there, our Heavenly Father, God never will. He never will. And if you're here today and you've never heard the good news of the gospel, I want you to just consider this. Like I said, I I don't know everybody. I don't know how you got here. But I want to say this, and this is not my words. This is according to God's word. Not my word, God's word. That we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's standard. God demands perfection. God demands sinlessness. But our sin, and we've all sinned, has separated us from God. And the Bible even says it makes us his enemy. Now, I don't like to use that phrase there. It's very scary. But the Bible is true. If you are in sin, you are an enemy of Christ. You are an enemy of God. And the Bible says that our sin demands payment. Our sin demands uh, has a wage. And that wage, that cost of our sin is death. And that is a, a, a just penalty for who we've sinned against. doesn't matter how small or how big the sin is. That is the cost. And that's the problem we're up against. How do we as a sinful person with a sinful heart and a sinful mind and, and, and every day we, we, we don't love God perfectly, how do we reconcile with a holy, perfect, eternal, sinless God who can't be in the presence of sin? How do we reconcile the two together? The good news is that Jesus Christ came down from heaven to earth. He lived the perfect, sinless life that we can't live. He took our death penalty on the cross for our sin. His death on the cross should have been our death. should have been us on the cross. We learn three days later that he rose again and it proves his authority over life and over death. And it also shows us that eternal life is truly Jesus's to give to whoever he pleases. He has that authority. He has that power because of his death and his resurrection on the cross. The Bible says that salvation, eternal life, receiving salvation from God, it's a free gift. None of us can earn it or win it back by thinking we can give enough money to charity, or maybe if I go to church five times a week, maybe I'll get on God's good side, or I'll, I'll serve and maybe I'll put cream cheese on the bagels. but I don't want to clean up because that's a lot of work, but maybe I'll do help with, with VBS or nursery. Right? We, we, we try to think, and sometimes we reconcile, if God just judges me by my good stuff all right, and, and, and puts it on a scale, I think I'll be pretty safe. I think I'll be close. The problem is, Scripture says, even our deeds of righteousness are trash before God. They amount to nothing before God. Again, the Bible says, for by grace we have been saved through our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a work. Salvation is never a work. We can never earn eternal life. We can never earn God's love. The only thing we do earn is hell. But the mercy and grace of God is that he sent Jesus. He gave us a way to him, a way for restoration. The Father came to us. Like the Father went running to his son and running to his other son. God came to us. And I just want to end and I am want to land the plane here. These are my closing questions. Just, just to ponder them. Prom- promise me you'll think about them today. Don't, don't leave and forget these. I want you to think to yourself, which son are you most like in this parable? Are you like the younger son? Maybe you've been rebelling against God. Maybe you feel unworthy of his love because of the things that you've done. If God only knew my past, if he knew everything, he would never accept me. Guess what? God knows already. And in his knowledge, he already sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for those sins. Remember, the father didn't turn his back on the son. He had every right to. And God won't turn his back to you if you come before Him and re- with a repentant heart and put your faith in Him and ask for forgiveness. In First John one nine, it says this: If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to cleanse us or to forgive us from our sins and cleanse us from all our righteousness. What does that mean? We have a guarantee that when we go before God and confess our sins, he's not going to zap us and be like, oh, okay, you did that, boom, you're getting punished, you're zapped, you're smited. It says here, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We can't do that. Christ does it. God cleanses us. I think of Lamentations 3, 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never, ever come to an end. They are new. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, my God. Are you like the younger son? Or this second question. Maybe you're like the older son. Does your self righteousness cause you to judge people and to judge them? Do you deem them not worthy? Right? Well, Christ is for me, and Christ died for my sins, but <laughs> listen, for you, uh, get away from me. Stay away. Right? That, that's what the Pharisees were saying. Do you care more about pleasing God with your outward appearance rather than your heart? Are you quick to condemn people? Are you slow to give grace? Are you, are you too slow to forgive? Right? Forgiveness happens when we remember how much we've been forgiven. If we forget how much we've been forgiven, it's a lot harder to forgive people. And this isn't a a sort of guilt trip, but when we remember what our sin did to Jesus on the cross, something in my mind makes me say, if Christ did that for me, then I can forgive my brother. I can forgive my neighbor, no matter what they've done. I'm not saying forgive and forget. I'm saying forgive and restore. So again, are you like the older brother? And Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, right, and if this is you, this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says, you Pharisees are so self-righteous that you are like a brand new, freshly washed or freshly new tombstone. Or think of a crypt. On the outside, it looks all nice, and the stone's precious, the stone's new, it hasn't been weathered, there's not any stains to it, right? You look good, but inwardly, you're full, or the crypt is full of decay. Of death, of bones, he says, that's the Pharisees. That is what their heart looked like. And I want to say this as an encouragement: don't condemn somebody just because they sin differently than you do. Don't condemn someone because they sin differently than you do. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Again, remember Jesus' main reason, this is a threefold parable. He has the, the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. The main point, he says this, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So my question is, what brings God joy? Sinners who repent. Sinners who who fall on their knees before him and ask for forgiveness. Sinners who realize what they've done, that they've sinned against heaven asking for forgiveness. And Jesus' word says there's a party in heaven. The angels celebrate. Look at the, the 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 shepherd, the woman, the father. Celebration, celebration, feast, partying over one sinner who has repented. And I want us to just say this as a reminder as I close up. We have a heavenly father who will never fail us. A heavenly father who's, whose love, his grace, his mercies they never run out. And how can I say that? Because his word says that. I'm taking God at his word, and God is trustworthy. And he says his grace never runs out to those that he's called his children. If you are in Christ, you become a new creation, the Bible says. If you are in Christ, we've been adopted into his family. All of us here can call each other's, uh, each other brother and sister, Right, Because we're united by, by Christ's death on the cross. His blood has covered our sins. And I want to end with this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 to 7, and then I'll close in prayer. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, Jesus, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he has lavished upon us. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that you've entrusted me to preach your word this morning. God, I pray that that your word can pierce our hearts and our minds. God, I just pray that we can remember and we can think that we know that we have a heavenly Father who loves us, even in all of our shame, our disappointment to you, the sins we've committed, we know we can run to you and that we can't outsin your grace. If we are in Christ, you've adopted us as your sons and daughters and you have a perfect love for us. I pray, Lord, as we look at the story and hopefully ponder it today, we can ask ourselves, are we the younger son or are we the older son? Are we rebelling against you? Or are we running away? Do we feel unworthy of your love? Have we repented before you? Have we asked for forgiveness in your name? Or maybe we're like the older son. We don't care about anybody else but herself. We're quick to judge, we're quick to hate, and we're quick to anger. I pray, Lord, that only you can transform our hearts. Only your spirit can convict us of what we need convicting of. And God, I just know that even through studying this parable, it was revealed to me I'm not worthy of anything but hell. I'm not worthy of anything but death. Even this past week, I've sinned. We've all sinned. And if we ask, like the younger son, and we ask our Father, for what we deserve, it would be hell because that is what we deserve. But we thank you for your amazing grace and your amazing love that you don't give us what we deserve. Instead, you gave us grace. You gave us Jesus, your Son, who willingly came to be our Savior. And we worship and praise Him as our risen and powerful Savior. So Lord, I just pray that you just be with us today as we can celebrate some of us with our fathers Maybe some of us, this is a tough day. I pray that we can draw close to you and remember you are our perfect heavenly Father. Your love never runs out. Your mercies are new every morning. You are slow to anger. You're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We love you. We thank you. And in your holy, precious name, Jesus, we pray this all. Amen.